Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a second-year grad student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, studying supernovae and other unusual transient events. I'm Molena Rice. I'm a third-year PhD student at Yale University, working on small bodies and planets and understanding how they evolve over time. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a second-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study planetary atmospheres. You're listening to Episode 10. Baryonic Banter. Today we're going to move into the land of cosmology, because there are lots of exciting studies of the universe at its largest scales and at its earliest moments that we really haven't explored yet on this podcast. Yeah, I'm really excited to be finally talking about cosmology, because I feel like it's something that we sort of like skirted around, uh, probably because like I'm so comfortable with planets and it's so it's <laughs> so hard to leave that comfort zone, but I'm really excited to sort of branch out a little bit more. Definitely, yeah. There are tons of interesting questions in cosmology, and why don't we jump into them now? Why don't you start us off, Melina? Yeah, so the the asteroid that I'll be talking about is called Where Are All the Baryons, and it's by Jeffrey Hinkle, and it was written by a good friend of mine, Anna DeGraff et al., um, in 2019. Uh, and it's, I guess, just to break down that title... Baryons are particles that contain an odd number of valence quarks, where quarks are these particles within, like, fundamental particle physics, where, like, we often think of atoms as these building blocks and these elementary particles that make up everything around us, but they're actually broken down further into these things called quarks. And so baryons are just like a certain type of material that is made up of an odd number of these quarks. So protons are made of two up quarks and one down, and neutrons are made of two down quarks and one up quark. Um, and this is what makes up most of the matter that we know of. So Alex got us started saying we're going to talk about cosmology, since that's where uh, the the coolest features of the universe are. But Milena, you're talking about literally the smallest things we possibly know. <laughs> what gives? <laughs> You know, it's it's all interconnected. Particle cosmology is a booming field, and it's it's kind of amazing how intricately related the tiniest things and the largest things in the universe are. Yeah, well, maybe if you need to learn something about the interconnectedness of all of the universe, you should listen to episode nine, <laughs> <laughs> Beyond the Grave. <laughs> yeah. This reminds me of uh, of a paper I read a long time ago when I was in high school. And I thought particle cosmology was the coolest thing. And of course, I understood absolutely none of it because it's a mostly theory driven field. And the math was just way over my head. But I read this paper about a theory of the universe. It was called a cyclic universe or an ekpyrotic universe, which is Greek for something about uh, born out of fire or, or something like that. Um, and I love this idea of a cyclic universe. And I presented this paper in um, 10th grade to my science research class in high school. And uh, recently I, I found the paper and, and looked over it again. And gosh, I really had no idea what was going on. This stuff is so <laughs> over my head now. I, 
it's amazing I grasped anything, you know, in, in truth. It's just, it's quite the complex theory. But, um, okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed that you did your own peer review <laughs> from an article yeah, from the 10th grade. that's pretty amazing. I definitely knew absolutely nothing about particle physics in 10th grade. <laughs> okay, but hopefully you know something about them now. So let's jump back to our astrobite and you can tell us a little more about uh, particle physics. Um, yeah, so we were talking about quarks. Oh, wait, wait. Actually, that, that reminds me. Um, there was something else I wanted to uh, say. Um, okay, okay. Uh, also in 10th grade, the reason I got into particle cosmology was because for my English class, we had to do a long-term research paper, and I wanted to write about quarks. So I ended up writing a whole research paper about quarks. I, I don't... I haven't looked this back at this one. This this is um, wow. uh, in English class. Wow. Yeah, you, you pick any topic. It was great. I really liked this project. Productive year for yeah. you. Uh, yeah, that was um, that was funny. I, I recall one of the interesting facts I found is that the relative size between a quark and a proton is about the same as between a golf ball and a mountain. But like mountains vary. In okay, size a, 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 a big mountain. <laughs> the mountain <laughs> you know Which you know mountain? the one <laughs> it's important <laughs> i okay. i was i was quite cool. taken by that fact okay you, you were saying huh. melina <laughs> right so again quarks make up atoms which we often think of as these fundamental building blocks that make up all the stuff in the universe specifically they make up the baryons in the universe but only 5% of the universe is actually made of this matter, like this very familiar matter that we're used to. And everything else is dark matter and dark energy, which we don't understand quite so well. And there are lots of ongoing searches about what exactly the nature is of those materials. And so this paper is about a subset of missing baryons in the universe. Okay, so we know that 95% of the universe we know very little about. Dark matter and dark energy, we have names for them, but that still doesn't tell us anything. But now you're telling me that even the 5% of matter that is made up of baryons that we seemingly know something about, we still don't know everything about it? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty incredible. There's a lot that we don't understand. But yeah, there's there's this whole missing baryon problem that this paper is addressing. And so the idea here is that baryons in galaxies and galaxy clusters are actually only about 20% of all of the expected baryons in the universe. And another 30% can be inferred from something called the Lyman Alpha Forest. Um, Two roads diverge in a Lyman Alpha Forest. I took the one less redshifted, and it made all the baryons. <laughs> and it made all the baryons? Is that what you said? Not all. That is what I said. Not all. 30%. 30% and it made 30% only. of the baryons. Robert Frost, eat your heart out. I worked hard on that joke. <laughs> okay, so, so we've talked about 50% so far, but cosmological simulations say that there should be this other 50%, and supposedly it should be in something called the warm-hot intergalactic medium, which is these filaments and sheets of gas that are connecting galaxies and galaxy clusters in the large-scale structure of the universe. Oh, a whim, you don't say. Yeah, the whim. Warm, <laughs> warm-hot intergalactic medium, whim. <laughs> and so... Uh, astronomers have searched for this signal, but, you know, it's it's not super bright. This is 
like very dispersed material. And so studies of X-ray absorption for di from distant quasars are one way that astronomers have looked for this material, and it's only found about 20% of what's expected. So then the sum of all the baryons that we actually know of, just to sort of recap, because I've thrown out a bunch of numbers, is only 70%. And so yeah. there's another 30% where we just like don't know where it is. We think it's probably in the whim but we haven't actually found it. <laughs> that can't be how you say it. I mean, I think that word is actually pronounced whim, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I like. But I you liked know, it. You gotta, you That's gotta, what I would say. You gotta, you gotta add a little language, oomph. So it's important. Okay, so Melina, what strategies are the authors currently using to find the rest of the baryons? And are there any major leads to where they could possibly be? Yeah, so it, it seems that these studies are probably not probing all of the missing baryons, just based on the fact that there's probably a lot left over from these simulations and what they predict. And so maybe some of them can't be found with these techniques. And another way that astronomers have been looking to measure baryons in the warm, hot interstellar medium is using something called the thermal of zeldovich effect. And so this is measuring how the energy of the cosmic microwave background, the CMB photons, um, are altered by the interactions with hot particles. So these photons are interacting with material along our line of sight as they're sort of traveling towards us. Um, and we can measure this effect using the thermal sunyev zeldovich effect. Everyone listening at home, just remember these, not only the words, but the pronunciations, okay? So, whim, <laughs> all right? That's that's the formal pronunciation that we're sticking with. It's not. Sunev Zoldovich, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like some people's names, right? So, it's like, we can't really blame right, them right. for their names. But I, I did have to give a presentation on the Sunev Zoldovich effect in undergrad, and I didn't want to actually say it, so I would just, like, play back the professor saying it every single time it came up, which was very often because the entire hey, presentation was about it. <laughs> that would have been more awkward than just saying it. <laughs> it was. It was excellent. Wonderfully awkward. Wow. Doctor, <laughs> Dr. Sunayev and Dr. Zoldovich, if you're listening, we are quite sorry. Let's let's spell this out in case any listener wants to look it up. It's S-Y-N-Y-A-E-V dash Z-E-L-D-O-V-I-C-H. Wait, it's S-U-N-Y-A-E. What did I say? I think you said S-Y-N. It's T-S-R-N-U-Y-Z-F. It's, you know, there's something about the pronunciation. I'm going to cut out all of this, by the way. I hope so let's not. let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. This is the kind of content our listeners demand. <laughs> not Sunayev and Zoldovich. Are they even alive? They're probably alive. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> So, so authors look for these thermal Suniev Zoldovich signals by finding maps of galaxies from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey um, and combining these with uh, the Planck map of the Compton Y parameter, which is a parameter that quantifies the strength of this effect. Uh, and they use these together to figure out which galaxy pairs are probably connected by warm filaments and which aren't. And so each of these individual filaments has a really weak signal. So in order to try to quantify how much material is in all of these filaments, they add together the signals of over a million pairs of galaxies and subtract away the contribution of hot gas from the galaxy halos to try to get rid of noise and figure out how much is actually in these filaments in between the galaxies. 
Did I tell you guys about my uh, SDSS plate story? You had a lot of stories. <laughs> there are a Will. lot of stories here. <laughs> Is that a no? How did you? Did you get it at Double AS? I you, got one at Double AS. Yeah, that's year, right? right. I was there 2019 in January for the winter meeting. Wow. I was there. And I was totally there. Damn! So we were all in the same wow. place before we <laughs> even knew each other. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Small but world. Did you guys get plates? I got a plate. I didn't because my department has like a bunch of coffee table plates on okay. them, so it's like not that novel. Oh, see, I thought it was maybe the coolest thing in the world. Uh, okay, we should probably tell yeah. what the heck we're talking about. So the SDSS, which is a revolutionary sky all sky survey, Sloan Digital Sky Survey (SDSS). That's right. And for the spectroscopic survey, that is to get spectra of a large number of sources, they had these large uh, metal plates that they put uh, in front of. The um, was it was it in front of the the uh, primary mirror? Is that where it fit? I don't know where it fit in the optical train, but um, it had holes in it for each source, and then each hole had a fiber optic cable leading to the uh, the spectrometer, and so that each star could be sampled with its own spectra. And nowadays, this is no longer how spectra are taken. There are much more technically advanced ways to do it. Uh, but back in the day, you had to make a plate for each region of the sky you wanted to look at. And so they were just giving away thousands upon thousands of these plates. They each weigh somewhere around, I don't know, five or ten pounds and cost 40 bucks to ship across the country. But I did it. <laughs> it's sitting in my closet. And as soon as I figure out what the heck to do with it, I will uh, make something beautiful. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. So, Melina, <laughs> just to recap, maps of galaxies... They looked at Planck maps of Compton Y parameter to figure out where potentially warm filaments are and those associated with galaxies, right? Right. How do they know what they're seeing is actually the filaments that they're looking for and not some other potential contamination in the field? Well, they also ran these tests on a control sample of galaxies that they expected were not connected by these filaments to ensure that the signals were real. So they looked based on this um, Compton Y parameter for galaxies that probably didn't have these filaments between them versus galaxies that did. And then they ran the same analysis on both sets in order to have this nice sort of control sample as well as their sample where they were actually looking for the filaments. And they estimated from this what the dust contamination could be and found that it shouldn't really be too important. And the main concern is just that there might be some contamination from the halos of these galaxies, but that it was less than 20% of the observed signal, which is not insubstantial, but it's not going to completely invalidate their results. And so after comparing with their controls, then they used constraints on the gas density and temperature from previous gravitational lensing studies to quantify how many baryons actually were in that data set that they were looking at. And they claimed to find an additional 11 plus or minus 7% of all baryons. That's a lot. Yeah, it's it's actually, it's a pretty large percentage. And Big error bars though, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a tiny error bar, but mm-hmm. it also, like, you know, there's the plus as well as the minus, so <laughs> it could be a pretty, it could be a pretty big reservoir for many of the missing baryons, and it sort of provides an important lead on where these could be, um, and I think it's a really important study to maybe open up the door for further studies that look at this in more detail as a potential reservoir for the missing baryons. Does that solve it? Do they think that this could 
have more and more and we'll just keep finding the the additional baryons through this method or do we need some other stuff too well even with this it looks like we're still missing 18 plus or minus 16 percent of baryons so that could be almost none of them to quite a large percent but the galaxy pair sample that was used in this paper isn't complete and so there might be a lot of smaller filaments that weren't actually probed by this works and that deeper surveys that are coming up could potentially reveal. So it looks like there are definitely paths forward. And as we get better data, you know, that's always the mantra, better data, better data. <laughs> deeper data, mm-hmm. then we'll be able to potentially resolve this problem by looking at the smaller filaments as well. Cool. Very Thanks, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, Will, this seems like a good time for the astro soundscape of the bi-weekly Space Fortnite sonification. For, for science. science. <laughs> for science. <laughs> In the name so, of astronomy. <laughs> so, do you have a sound set up for us? Oh, you bet I do. All right. <laughs> I'm excited about this one. I think you're going to enjoy it. Ready? All right, here we go. Okay, what did we just hear? It sounded like it sounded like something that came out of like Stranger Things. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I mean, it sounded kind of like noise to me. Like I would guess something like the CMB or something, maybe. Okay. So the grittiness of it made me think of like part individual particles or something. So my guess would be maybe like cosmic ray collisions or something okay interesting yeah um it seems like it seemed quasi random whatever it is right what if it's what if it's dust moving around on the surface of like a comet or something i don't know how you would observe that what do you mean we've landed on oh no we've landed (laughs) on comets too yeah um yeah rosetta 67p yeah, I don't know what they yeah. what the sonification would be in that case. I take it I was wrong. No, okay. you're not. So what, yeah. Um, <laughs> what is it? This is lightning on Saturn. Oh. And it was observed in the radio by Cassini, which orbited the Saturn system for a number of years before plunging into Saturn uh, three years ago. One of the interesting things about this is they say – that these crackles and pops are similar to what you'd hear if you listen to AM radio during a thunderstorm, which I've never done and I think would be huh. really cool. So I might try to do that. Yeah, the next time any one of us has a thunderstorm in our area, let's uh, let's get Zoom going yeah. and see what we hear. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Will, for yeah, our astro you. soundscape of the bi-weekly space on Fortnite sonification for science and the name of astronomy. <laughs> and thanks for your good guesses. And that now takes <laughs> us to my astrobite. It's called... Baryonification, Dark Matter N-Body Simulations and the Impact of Gastrophysics by Jamie Seliman. The paper that it summarizes was published uh, by Schneider and Tessier in 2016. It really reminds me of gastronomy, you know, (laughs) think about going to like a gastro pub or something. It's a real thing. It's an important thing. It's really really a place where they deal with uh, the astrophysics (laughs) of gas, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, I think food is much more important, honestly. You go to a gastropub for an astrobite. 
Oh! <laughs> we should move on. <laughs> All right. And this, this is an interesting paper. What they talk about here is how to understand the baryons in the universe by looking at the dark matter. And we know from our studies of dark matter, it only interacts with other things gravitationally. That's why it's dark. It doesn't interact with photons, doesn't release photons. And we know that dark matter shapes how galaxies' clusters form and evolve. But the question is then how do the baryons shape how the dark matter behaves? So since there's so much more dark matter than baryonic matter, why does it matter that much? Yeah, there is a lot more. Uh, What the interesting question is that the simulations of dark matter are on such a large scale that they just they can't really capture the behavior happening on a small scale with the baryons. They could say that a cluster of galaxies would probably form here, but to do a full cosmology simulation with hydrodynamics, which would include gas, stars, radiation, it, it, it would just not be possible to get the accurate cosmology. Yeah, it sounds pretty computationally expensive to be able to do something like that. Oh, yeah, it just can't be done. Uh, I mean, maybe many, many years in the future, it's something that can be considered. But the uh, the N-body simulations of dark matter use a one kiloparsec scale size, and many things that baryons do happen on much smaller scale sizes. So the only way to incorporate things like feedback from supernovae or, or active galactic nuclei, which we've talked about, is to use what they call a subgrid model. I'm not a modeler, so I'm just trying my best to understand what this means, but it seems pretty cool. I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious as to like what these simulation predictions would end up being if you're trying to figure out how the baryons affect the dark matter, because we can't study dark matter directly, right? right? This is all, this is, yeah, this is all simulation space. Okay, so this is all just, like, in theory, and you wouldn't necessarily expect to get, like, observational predictions from it, then? It's just sort of, like, to try to figure out what effect the dark matter would have in theory? That's right. Yeah, I think this research is, is very loosely connected to observations at the moment. Okay, cool. And... So, so I've heard the term precision cosmology, and I was also wondering, is that what's going on in this paper? Is that what they're doing? I, yeah, I admit I don't really have a good sense of what the term means. Um, I've tried to look it up, but I didn't find a whole lot in that. Alex, what, what do you know about precision cosmology? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Alex would be a good person. To... <laughs> precision cosmology is kind of colloquially used to refer to the current endeavors to constrain observationally the fundamental constants of the universe Hmm. so we talked about like the few fundamental constants in previous episodes and the fact that we're getting like smaller and smaller error bars on for example the hubble constant is because of the current age uh, and efforts in the realm of precision cosmology but it seems like this in in the realm of simulation is a little bit different you do of course want to get better more accurate data but in this you're not improving your observational constraints you're improving your constraints on the things that you're not actually able to simulate on your Mm. grid right that's right that's right yeah exactly um this is this is a a proof of concept in some ways that you can add baryons into a cosmological simulation without using hydrodynamics code on a scale where it's just not possible to do that and the way that they do this uh, which is very cool is they do like a time step of the dark matter only simulation They take the output, add a correction to what the profile of, say, a galaxy cluster halo, dark matter halo, would look like. 
and then they they stick it back into the dark matter only model and time step it again and 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 so on and so forth do a step pull it out correct it put it back in and and keep going okay so are they doing that as opposed to sort of the full simulation to try to cut back on the computational expense then yes that that's exactly right uh, this is the this is pretty much the only way to do this um, with our current computational power um, and the corrections they include to the dark matter only simulation account for cold gas hot gas think of like ejected gas um, stars and then the feedback which is really hard that everything that happens like a, like a supernovae for example some of this material is going to fall back on the remaining stellar remnant and you have to account for that it's really hard uh, and on a galactic scale, there's just so much more to deal with. It's nice to know that everything that we can see, stars, galaxies, planets, and everything we've talked about on this podcast thus far, come down to a correction term when it comes to the universe. That's right. Your life is a correction. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> what do they find, Will? So they find that the dark matter-only model does a good job until it gets to short length scales. That is, smaller than a galaxy size where it overpredicts how much gravitational clumping there should be. To me, that makes sense. Everything we know currently says that dark matter doesn't act on very short scales, or if it does, it's negligible. So what happens is they, they take the dark matter uh, simulation, they pull it out, they stick in these corrections, put it back in, and, and what they find is the corrections matter most for small-scale things. I found it very interesting, and I, I like this way of thinking where you don't really have to run the full model to get some of the important features of, of a full model. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm kind of interested to know, maybe I'd have to go in and read the paper in more detail, but um, like, how would they know that their baryon corrections are physical if they're just like adding in these corrections every so often? Uh, is it just that like it's reproducing what we're actually seeing on certain scales and so that's sort of the justification that it's physical I, th I believe so what the statistic they use here to correct as we've said is called the matter power spectrum and this is something it's complicated it's, it has to do with how um, different length scales get affected by the different types of matter which includes dark matter and so if you look at the paper and you look at some of the plots, you can see these plots of matter power spectrum versus size. And, you know, it pulls it down in one size, pushes it up another size. And I think that's that's probably observationally constrained. It might be constrained based on other models that run on short scales, the full hydrodynamics code that can handle right. how a galaxy operates but can't do bigger than that if those models produce these. So that that's my understanding of how that works. Okay, so where where do they go from here? What are the next steps to move forward in this project? Some of the things that they talk about are doing observations with the Vera Rubin Observatory, which is soon to launch. And they also talk about the Sonyaev Zeldovich effect. And they might be able to use that to get some more observational constraints. But it's still, this is very early in this research. As always, we'll need more data, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, you mentioned, Will, just a little bit, the Vera Rubin Observatory, and I think that marks a perfect transition to my bite. And for it, I think, let's go back to 1954. All right. <laughs> now, All right. if you'll remember from the last episode, in 1954, we had what might have been the first pulse of a pulsational pair instability supernova, right? That's, yeah, yes. But while this was happening down here on Earth, 
astronomer Vera Rubin was completing her doctoral thesis under astronomer George Gamow. Oh, wow. I don't think I ever realized that George Gamow was, was Vera Rubin's thesis advisor. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. He is, he is an amazing author. There, there are two books I recall reading that I really loved. Um, One, Two, Three, Infinity is an excellent book. And Mr. Tompkins, which is a whole series of books that you can actually go buy now as one, like a, one volume. And it's not that long. It's it's such a such a great book. So He wrote Mr. Tompkins in paperback? Well, he wrote the Mr. Tompkins series. Mr. Tompkins in paperback is the volume where they, they put them all together. My dad gave me a copy of Mr. Tompkins in paperback when I was a kid. Is that That's right? That's crazy. I have that on my bookshelf right now. I had no I idea this was that, that guy. Book. I love that book this so much. This is crazy. Yeah. Huh. I always thought his name was Gamma. Uh, yeah, I think he's from some some country hmm. where the W is pronounced with a V. On his Wikipedia page, it has, after his name, it written with a V, another spelling of his yeah. name. Yeah, he was born Georgie Gamov, mm. Soviet American, and then I think Anglicized his name to George Gamow to uh, establish mm. himself as an American. Wow. Now you know. Oh, this is this is a great episode. I'm I'm having a great time, guys. Hmm. <laughs> We're hearing so much about your life. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed that book as well, Alex. Um, but let's let's talk about Vera Rubin because her work was was quite revolutionary and even still has not gotten the appreciation it deserves. Yeah, so Vera Rubin is, of course, the namesake for the upcoming Vera Rubin Observatory that you mentioned, Will. And it's going to scan the entire southern sky every three nights for 10 years, starting in 2023. So Vera Rubin, in 1954, while finishing her thesis, found that galaxies were clumped in the universe and not randomly distributed, kind of throughout all space. And this was a controversial idea at the time. Uh, It took decades for people to actually have lots more data to be able to confirm or deny this theory. Today, we know that galaxies at large scales are structured in filaments that form what's called the cosmic web. Right. So these are the same galaxies that I was talking about in my astrobite. I'm fairly right. sure. Right. So something that I didn't mention that I actually don't know, though, is what what's the reason for this large scale structure? Oh, uh, well, we're still looking for the cosmic spider, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, about the, the cause of the cosmic is web? What? Cosmic oh, spider. I see, okay. I see. <laughs> Sorry, I'm slow. I get it, I get it. Okay. That's, that's a high-level joke right there. <laughs> it's, a, it's okay, Malena, it's okay. That. The moment's passed. <laughs> <laughs> the knitting needles of the cosmos. I'm trying to save your joke, wow. Alex. okay, so... <laughs> I thought it was good. We think that the cosmic web is a consequence of what's called baryonic acoustic oscillations in the early universe. That's a really big term, but basically back when the universe was kind of this really dense plasma and it was opaque, so matter was all bouncing around with photons, you had pressure waves that moved through this dense plasma like sound waves from density perturbations. So these Dark matter potentials started to form, and as material fell in toward them, it created these sound ripples, basically, in this plasma. And when the universe started to become transparent, these ripples got frozen in, and these are now over-densities that formed the basis for the large-scale structure of the cosmic web that we see today. 
Very cool. Sounds vaguely familiar from cosmology class. <laughs> <laughs> like four years ago. <laughs> so by frozen in, Alex, you mean these like pressure waves, these oscillations became the large scale structure? Right. So these over densities frozen in from these BAOs now became over densities where galaxies started to move inward toward and cold gas as well. So these became these kind of filaments in this cosmic web. So basically by creating maps of large scale structure, we can constrain how far these oscillations expanded before they froze in, which can help constrain the dark energy equation of state by fully understanding these potentials. And it actually takes us full circle because the Vera Rubin Observatory's legacy survey of space and time will get estimated redshifts for billions of galaxies. And because of this, we'll be able to map out large scale structure much better than we ever could before. Wow, I really love that Vera Rubin is still teaching us about dark energy at large scales, even after her death, you know? Yeah, it's exciting. And and now, with all of that preface, you're ready to hear about my astrobite. We haven't right. done the astrobite yet? We haven't done the astrobite <laughs> yet. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of background stuff in cosmology. Like, really a lot of terms, a lot of parameters. <laughs> and, and we haven't covered any of it before. Yeah, all right, Alex, true. bring it on. <laughs> okay. It's called Connections on the Cosmic Web by Brianne McDonough, based on a paper by Kralish and others in 2019. And in it, the authors wanted to see if galaxies in nodes in the cosmic web with different degrees of connectivity had different star formation rates. Okay, so we got nodes, we got degrees of connectivity and star formation rates. Give us some definitions. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the... The nodes within the cosmic web are basically just the intersection points of different filaments, okay? You think of these like vertices in this web. Connectivity is associated with the number of filaments, the number of strands, basically, that's associated with each node or vertex. So more filaments corresponds to a higher connectivity. So from this paper, we have that simulations done with two different codes, Horizon and Simba, predict larger galaxies to be found at nodes with higher connectivity. And the authors find, after looking through nearly a billion galaxies from SDSS data, that this is actually the case. Well, that's what you would expect, though, right? Because material moves towards overdensities, and so you'd expect larger nodes that have larger galaxies to also have more material coming into them, right? Exactly, right. So material moves predominantly along the filaments like blood in our veins. So the cosmic web, it's thought now, is the dominant source of a galaxy's growth. And next, they wanted to look at star formation rates. So by dating the stars in a particular galaxy, they can estimate which of these stars were born recently and get a constraint on the star formation. They they dated the stars to figure out their ages. <laughs> okay, when you break it down <laughs> like that, it sounds weird. They... They didn't date the stars. They dated the stars. Okay, does that clear it up? They dated the stars. Okay, oh, okay. okay. That, that so, clears it. A star is a hot date. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to keep moving. we got to keep moving. <laughs> they they dated the stars. Just keep going from there. Okay. So, strangely enough, they find that 
for every type of galaxy that they considered, every type of galaxy morphology along this Hubble tuning fork, galaxies with a higher connectivity for a fixed stellar mass experienced lower star formation rates, not higher, ranging from a mean connectivity between 2.8 on the low end and 3.4 on the high end. Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? You would expect more connections mean more gas moving into the galaxy, so you'd expect more stars. That's kind Yeah, of so the authors thought this too, and their, their uh, justification for why this is actually not the case is threefold. So they proposed three potential solutions. As always. As always. Three theories. <laughs> Number one is that one funnel might be a more steady, coherent stream of cold gas for star formation whereas multiple streams could be too turbulent to actually condense into stars in the inner regions of the galaxy. Number two is that maybe more connectivity associated with this galaxy increases AGN activity, the active galactic nucleus, that's a big black hole at the center of a galaxy, and outflows, so radiation from a more active galactic nucleus, then quenches star formation, so it's unable to form many stars in the inner region. And number three is that maybe larger galaxies experience few what we call dry mergers. I'm very sorry for this nomenclature, but dry means a merger with not a lot of gas and a wet merger means a gas-filled galaxy merger. So maybe larger galaxies experience a few dry mergers, whereas smaller galaxies experience many wet mergers. So you just find in these smaller galaxies with more gas, more star formation. Okay, so they propose three models, which, you know, based on previous episodes, means that they rule out two and then they pick one, right? So which which one's going to be this Two time? early simulations seem to actually support the AGN model. That is, AGN in highly connected galaxies can more efficiently quench star formation. But this is based on only two simulations, and so more studies should be done to actually build up a statistical sample and see whether or not this is what we observe as well. And with that, I think it's time for our one-sentence summaries. You want to lead us off, Will? Sure. If you want to learn about the baryons, look at the dark matter, the stuff we can't see and we don't understand at all, using models that are too complicated <laughs> to run. Nice. And Alex? Turns out, networking ain't all it's cracked up to be, as the most connected galaxies are actually those making the lowest amount of stars. And you, Melina? We still don't even know where all the baryonic matter in the universe is, let alone dark matter and all that other stuff that doesn't emit light, but filaments of warm, hot intergalactic medium, whim, whim. gas, between <laughs> galaxies, whim, may account for a large fraction of the missing baryon budget. Nice. And that's thanks to the whim and the... <laughs> that concludes yep. episode 10 of astro soundbites baryonic banter if you want to read the three astrobites we talked about today and or the associated papers check out the links in the show notes i want to end this episode by thanking everyone who listens to and supports this podcast we're three grad students who are making this up as we go and your support means the world if there are any topics you'd like to see covered that we haven't yet discussed on this podcast, please write to us at astrosoundbites at gmail.com. And if you want to hear any more of our fabulous episodes, we now have 10, including this one, 
and you can find them all on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Stop laughing! <laughs> I'm sorry! Okay, let me do it again. Give me one second. <laughs>